Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the GoFull Crypto Podcast. As I record this introduction, Keegan and I are in the United Kingdom and we will be here until the 28th of December. So if you are listening in from the UK, let us know. We will be visiting north of London. Uh, I think we might go up as far as Manchester. And if you're, you know, anywhere around or wanted to come say hi, catch us for a couple of drinks, we'd love to meet you. So uh, I think the best way to reach us is via email. That's ready at gofullcrypto.com. Or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter or Keegan and, uh, and we can get in touch. All right. Hope you enjoyed the last two episodes that we published about El Salvador. Uh, I feel like I was probably a little bit too skeptical of the of the scenario, but I'm really glad that Keegan and then Keegan and Dorothy sort of balanced out the discussion. And uh, we all really hope that you enjoyed it and took away a lot from it. The next two episodes are going to be with Andrew. Now, we wanted to speak with him because um, a mutual friend and a fellow podcast listener and a fellow newsletter subscriber recommended that we reach out to him because he had a really cool story. And in this episode and the next episode, what we did was essentially uncovered what his life has been all about um, ever since he was 17 or 18. And uh, it was really interesting listening to his perspective and his experience mostly because he worked as a hedge fund trader and uh, we uncovered a lot of what happens behind the scenes in traditional finance uh, and we also drew a lot of references to um, how one markets work and two how that impacts or relates to cryptocurrencies so this is a really awesome conversation or sets of conversations because uh, he only had an hour when we recorded with him the first time and then the second episode went a little bit above and we loved the way that he articulated things he is he's a very good eloquent speaker and <laughs> we, we could listen to a story forever and listen to his explanations because they're all really good so hope you take away a lot from andrew if you want to take his class he teaches at dalhousie and uh you'll find his details in the show notes and uh, and that's that so enjoy. If you have questions, you can always reach out to us, ready at GoFull Crypto. Um, and again, if you have questions for any of our guests, they always leave their information uh, in the episode as well. And for one last time, if you are in the UK, let us know. We're here until the 28th of December, 2021. We'd love to see you. All right, stay tuned. Or sorry, not, no, stay tuned for the beginning of the episode. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Mogokshi Palwi, and the guests on the GoFull Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only. Hello, Andrew. Hello. How are you guys doing today? Doing so good. I'm really excited to have you tell your story to our audience and also to learn from the many experiences that you've had in your lifetime. So let's begin. Tell us, um, give us an introduction on you. Sure. I mean, um, right now I actually uh, am a professor um, or instructor rather at Dalhousie University um, for the College of Sustainability. Um, and I work a lot um, on sort of the political economy side and sort of how that affects the environment. But my background uh, is actually more in um, finance. And it's not something that I, uh, how I, I sort of fell into it. Um, through a series of events and going all the way back to when I was about 19 years old. And so I was not in university at the time. Um, and I was working a summer job for a small bond firm that was uh, trading overseas in Europe. And they decided to be very kind and sponsor me for my uh, Series 7 Securities and Exchange Commission, which is now FINRA, I believe. Um, license. Um, this would allow me to actually be an active trader. Um, and and this was still when you were 19 though, right? Yeah, which is not typical uh, to, <laughs> to, to take that test at that age, right? Most people take it like once they've graduated undergrad and stuff like that. And it's a bit of an onerous test. I mean, it's like six to seven hours you're sitting there and you, you have to study for like a couple months and sort of assimilate all this information. And then you sort of just basically go through everything from, you know, how to not like fuck over a client to also basically how you, you know, work with different options chains and things like that. So it was from the technical to really sort of the, the more client based, right? 
Um, I mean, in some senses, you could kind of compare it to like a mini bar exam for finance workers. Um, and then after that, you tend to take some subsidiary licenses that help you operate in different locales. So I ended up taking like the 63 and the 65, uh, which are, you know, allowed me to operate in places like New York and such. Hang on though. What about series one to six? Well, every series, <laughs> you don't really have to do them sequentially, right? So it all depends what you want to do, right? right? So if you wanted to do like a series six instead of a series seven, and my memory is a little, because you're cutting me on the spot here about what a series six is, because I never took it. <laughs> okay. I believe, no, it's okay, but I believe the series six, at least at the time, it allowed you to trade in mutual funds, but not an actual individual stock. So it was an easier exam, right? So it was something that was tend to be taken more by like insurance brokers who like passed the insurance exam, which was tended to be a smaller exam, and then just wanted to offer for say like mutual funds to their clients so they could try to get as much of the wallet share of their client, right? I understand. I think what I'm, <laughs> what I'm trying to piece together is you you wanted to take the series seven at 19. So you needed to know about all of this stuff before you were 19. Well, right? or, or I, I tend to be, I mean, I, I'm one of those people that work really well with a lot of pressure um, and I can assimilate a lot of information quickly if uh, <laughs> if you kind of put like a proverbial gun to my head, I suppose. Um, and so I just like crash course study for this thing over the course uh, of a couple months. And then um, I didn't like pass it with a massive pass. Right. But I did I did get past it. And, um, and yeah, and the seven is definitely the exam that was the most preferable to take because it's the most universal and it gives you sort of the most universal access to do different things, right? You can trade in options, you can trade, um, in derivatives to an extent, uh, besides options. And then you can also trade in just equities, mutual funds, bonds, whatever you want to do. Right. I, I'm thoroughly impressed by the fact that you knew about all of this when you were 19, like how many years did you spend learning about it for one and two? How did you know that this is what you wanted to do or this is what your interest was in? Well, two different questions there. I would say that, um, I, I learned about it just sort of, I think sometimes when you're like at that age, you don't really, uh, and no one's telling you that something is hard and you don't really, you don't actually really psych yourself out of it. Right. Yeah. So you're just kind of like, oh, I can just kind of, yeah, I can, I can pick this up. I understand. I have the workbook. Um, and then, um, and to be honest, I mean, the, it's very rare for a 19 year old to take the exam, but the exam is not impossible. Either. Right. Like it's, it's, it's not like, it's not the most difficult exam in the world, to be honest. Um, or at least from my perspective, it wasn't, um, I do know folks that have had a lot of trouble with it. Um, but I think the people that have the most trouble with the seven are people that don't like standardized tests, right. right. And that have issues with standardized tests. Um, I've never had an issue with standardized tests. I've usually been pretty good at them. So that's another thing is that like, you know, when you know how to take a standardized test, you can kind of game it out a little bit right. too. Right. And so I think that, uh, so that I think was the reason, you know, why I was like, sure, I'll take this. Now, as far as knowing that I wanted to do this for the rest of my life, no, like that was not, <laughs> that was not sort of part of the equation at the time. It just sound, felt like a kind of a cool thing to get under my belt. And I think there was also a little bit of feeling like I was behind a little bit because I was 19 and I wasn't, uh, you know, in university, like, you know, yet, like I hadn't decided to start my undergrad yet. Right. Right. And so that felt like a, a little bit of a, a jump start. And then, um, I ended up, uh, moving to the West coast and then that license came in very handy. Um, this was, you know, sort of mid nineties. Uh, and this is the West coast of the States, right? Yes, this would okay. be, yes. I grew up, I, I grew up in and around New York city. Um, which I think just in itself kind of because of the, the financial markets there makes it a little bit less mysterious, right? You're kind of growing up around a lot right. of people that work in this industry. You know what I mean? It's not like I was growing up in a small town in Ohio that maybe had very little exposure to a lot of this industry. Right. And so I moved to the West coast, um, with someone and, uh, the license came in really handy because this was, I, I secured the license, I believe it was uh, summer of 96. So this is sort of like, as the internet bubble is like really picking up. Right. And everyone wants to buy the internet stocks. So if you had a seven, that means that you were cheap to hire, right? Because normally if you hire someone that doesn't have it, you have to basically train them for six months, sponsor them to take it. And then that, you know, you have to basically keep them going financially through that. Um, and they're not allowed to open accounts. They're not allowed to do stuff like that. But because I was fully licensed, I could do whatever I wanted, right? So I worked for a company um, in California that no longer exists called Dean Witter. It got eaten by Morgan Stanley. So technically it was Morgan Stanley. Um, but I was on the retail side. So this was, you know, basically you know, hawking internet stocks to people that you would call, you know what I mean? And that's how things worked back then. You would co-call, you would like do this, you do that. And then you'd get someone that would actually want to give you money and open an account and then you would do it. And then you start to run the account for me though, because I think, um, 
I think because they kind of knew that I wasn't going to stay long term, they put me more in a position of finding and opening new accounts and then having those accounts passed to senior brokers who would then manage them. At the end, though, um, I was quite successful at this. Um, and so they wanted to hire me on. They, they didn't want me to leave. Um, but I, at this point, wanted to go get a university degree. So I came back uh, home. And after a little while, I ended up going to um, Columbia in New York. And um, at that point, um, and I'll put this out there for your audience, like I definitely <laughs> have like serious ADHD. So like my, <laughs> my like life goals changed on a dime. Right. So I think that by the time I went, to, I wanted to go to university, I felt like so behind that I was like, nope, you know what? I'm going to be a doctor, right? I'm going to solve my whole life <laughs> in one shot. I'm going to do this. So I went and I started like biochem and, um, I hate chemistry and like, I forgot about that. And after like two <laughs> years of doing chemistry, this was an unrealistic goal. I mean, like my grades were okay. But like, I mean, you know, it was torture, like doing things like, you know, even Gen Chem. I actually found Gen Chem to be the most torturous organic. I think she was a little bit more interesting. But yeah, so I sort of uh, realized in the, the summer of my second year that this was not something I wanted to do for the rest of my life at all, um, nor, more, uh, nor even like want to study for another semester. So at Columbia, they kind of make you do a core, right, which is sort of what they do here at King's University. Um, but they have you do it over the course of two years rather than doing it in years that, that first year that they do at King's. And so I had already built up a lot of uh, humanities courses through completing that core and social sciences courses. And I just loved history the most. So that's what I ended up just rolling with. And I actually graduated with a history degree which was a nice and fun experience that was great. I loved writing those papers. I loved going to those classes, but there were absolutely no jobs for anyone with a history degree, especially for someone like graduating in the early 2000s, right after 9-11 and the internet bubble collapse and the, and the whole economy sucked. So what do you do? Well, I still had that, that, license. that license that I could fall back on because I, I would kind of renew it every summer. Um, and so, yeah, by, by the, sort of the, the internships and the jobs I would take, um, and so I had that. So again, I was cheap. So I got hired by this large uh, French insurance company that was also that also does like, you know, a lot of uh, market trading for their clients. And suddenly I was now in this industry for real. Like there was no university coming. There was nothing. There was no stop point now. Now this was my career. Um, and like life just kind of came together in that regard. Like I was, you know, I was with someone, uh, in a long-term relationship. We actually got married. And so now this became a more and more embedded career. Um, so I started there and I did sort of portfolio management and client acquisition, stuff like that. Um, and we tried to focus on high net worth, uh, but I kind of hate clients, um, <laughs> especially, especially in this particular industry. Right. Cause I mean, you know, here's okay. So by high net worth, you mean high net worth clients. Yeah. And I think that, is that um, both businesses and individuals? Uh, mostly individuals. So we're talking about mostly like, say, you know, doctors that are like close to retirement and have like accrued a lot of money or, you know, like a real estate developer who's, you know, put up a couple buildings and, you know, has a lot of assets and management and stuff like that. That would be the goal. But you would also encounter people that would be, say, more of just, you know, maybe not quite that extremely wealthy. But once you... What's the threshold for, for being high net worth for the, the clients that you were working with? I think for us, if they, if we received over a million dollars from them, we considered that like in a different style um, versus if it was somewhere between um, like, say, as little as 50,000 to 250, that was a very different style of allocation. Um, that 250 to a million is a little bit um, of a gray area, at least and this is sort of me jogging my memory because it was 20 years ago. But that was sort of a little bit more of a gray area because you could uh, you could be a little bit more aggressive and, and assign them to portfolios that were doing things that were a little more sexy, but it really often depended on that person's level of income and that person's market experience in the past and how sort of savvy they were. And risk tolerance as well, probably. Yeah, and that's the first thing you do, right? Because right. I mean, a lot of folks who might give you a million dollars don't want you to be sexy with the money, right? So a lot of that also kind of comes out. And so I think that uh, clients are, you know, so one of the things of dealing with clients like that is that they... Um, are often very good and uh, in their own job, in their own field, and they're experts in it. And, you know, some of these clients, um, you know, especially like doctors, have a little bit of a, a God complex too. You know what I mean? They're, <laughs> they're very good at this stuff and this is what they know and they're experts in their field and they're very rarely questioned. Sometimes that can then also dovetail into them assuming that they're also experts on other things, right? So, you know, you would get like, you know, you'd be told what to do by them. You're like, I don't think that's a good idea. And then it would go against it and it wouldn't work out. And then they'd be upset or like the market would just, um, I remember there was one incidence where, um, 
there was a bit of a, like a, there was this huge commodity bubble that kind of hit after Hurricane Katrina because this is, and they basically wiped out um, all of the oil production down in the Gulf. And so this caused a spike in commodities. So I had this client who like desperately wanted to jump in on that, on that spike. So he, so we, we, we did this, we, we like got him into all of these different um, sort of energy equity uh, positions and, you know, but I was like, I don't think this is a good idea because you're literally playing a Momo trade right now that's based on a weather event. That's What's kinda, a Momo trade? Uh, momentum trade, right? So you're playing a momentum trade right now that's based on a weather event, which is like, you know, not the best thing to do. Okay, so for our listeners, a momentum trade might look like something like Dogecoin or Shiba Inu right now. Exactly. Whereas like it's purely it based on hype yeah, and, yeah. and media frenzy and they want to like dovetail on, to, on top of that and multiply their gains okay great yes and and i think that you know there's been an uh and cryptocurrencies are a great place where you see a lot of momentum trades oh, tend yeah. to happen right <laughs> because it's almost like people suddenly discover them right and that adds to that momentum trade too right um and so anyway like so this is just like a, one of these examples is that of course like this eventually fell apart right that this trade went parabolic uh oil came back down you know natural gas did not stay at 12 dollars. you know where where it was at that point like it was a, it was a momentary blip if i, I mean I, I'm, I think it was 12 dollars. i can't remember it has been a while but anyway the moment that this trade didn't work out and all the commodity markets resettled and, and sort of you know retested um prior sort of levels uh and came down to find support you know obviously this person lost money and now they're freaking out and they're screaming at you on the phone and it was their idea <laughs> so about that time i was also um uh I, I knew a fellow uh through my brother actually who was working at a hedge fund across across town um that was working in the west side of manhattan so there's a hedge fund most of them had moved up from you know wall street and they were all kind of in like park avenue at that point and we had drinks and he was like, well, forget that noise, dude. Like, come over and trade with us. Like, <laughs> you don't have to deal with any of that. You know, we're, we're, we're long short proprietary traders. We don't deal with individual clients. And the I'm, I'm not going to name the fund or go into any of that kind of stuff. But essentially, it was um, highly leveraged, um, often high frequency trading. Um, so there was use of black boxes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was a very large fund. Black boxes being like algorithmic commuters. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Exactly. And a lot of people use it to trade everything now. Right. And because at that point, it was a little bit more uh, like rudimentary than it is now. They're far more sophisticated. And now we're almost bordering on like, you know, AI starting to, you know, basically begin to trade and stuff with some of the complexity of these algorithms. Hey, the only context I have of black boxes and airplanes. <laughs> so can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, like, I, I actually don't even know the origins of that term. That's just what everyone called it. So it was basically, it's basically like your computer, right? This thing is sort of your black box that has all of these uh, algorithms built into them um, about like, that are basically designed to trade the market. And you can customize those algorithms if you work with sort of your quantitative team based on maybe your trading style or things that you want to, you want to trade, right? So you would probably customize it differently if you're an oil trader than say, if you were a tech equities trader, right? So um, I think the general idea is that you, you don't necessarily know what happens inside the box. You just know that you're getting the right output from the box. Exactly. Like money in, more money comes out. You're like, well, do I even care what happens in the middle? <laughs> exactly. And, and like it, you can use the term for almost anything. We even use it in political science when we think about government structures and sort right. of like the, the inputs, you know, from society and then the outputs from government and government is kind of this black box, right? Where things happen, the bureaucracy just kind of takes effect, right? And it creates outputs based on those inputs. Interesting. So is, well, is the, is black box, at least in trading terms, a replacement for one human or a couple of humans who would be doing that job? Or like hundreds. Yes, actually. Uh, which comes a little bit later in the story, really. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, and so like, uh, these things began to gain popularity in the nineties and then increased in the two thousands and became increasingly sophisticated. And the folks that set up this hedge fund had actually made a lot of their initial money, if I recall um from pioneering a lot of this quantitative trading right that was basically sort of computer ba computer algorithmic based um and because the fund was mostly just an amalgamation of a few people's money and they were all extremely wealthy um you know basically they were billionaires almost um they you know you didn't really feel bad when you lost them a little bit of money um so how much is a little bit for a billionaire well, I mean, you also have to rem remember that they didn't put all their money into this fund, right. but the money that they did put in was probably all leveraged 40 to 1. So there was a lot of money to go around. So there's a lot more money in this fund than they probably have, which means that you, you can get fired very quickly if you start to lose a lot of money because this is all very highly leveraged, right? And so it's easy to get that margin call, right, if you begin to start to lose money. 
And so they would then divvy up these funds that they had, and then every trader would have a certain amount to trade. That's what a proprietary trading is. And the better of a trader you were, or the more profitable, rather, uh, the more they would probably be likely to increase your capital, increase the amount of money you were allowed to trade. If you were not successful, they tended to decrease that. Um, and so this, I, this went all the way through sort of the financial collapse. Um, and while the financial collapse wasn't typically that bad for long short funds like I was in, because you can just jump on the other side of the trade. Um, and in a lot of ways, a lot of these types of hedge funds are kind of almost sort of professional momentum traders, right? Um, folks that know how to do that in a way in which, or hope they know how to do it in a way in which that once this sort of thing goes parabolic and peaks, they then hand, they basically call it like sort of like, you know, got to hand the bag off to someone, right? And so they would usually hand it to, uh, you know, retail clients that are now just seeing this move and jumping in, which is what I kind of saw on the other end, right? So these folks would get in quicker and earlier, and they have these computer programs that can usually recognize these movements. And so they're in very quickly. And so they're sort of the beginning of that base a lot of times for the momentum trade pushing up. And they're also taking things off the market too. So now there's less availability of this, right? Because people are holding it. But once you kind of, once your, your signals, because you, you use hundreds of technical indicators that people don't often know how to use very well at home um, or don't have access to for that matter, uh, we also had much more access to like what was going on in the market. Um, there comes a point where you're like, okay, this thing has gone like completely parabolic. Now it's time to get the fuck out of this. And thank God that, you know, people playing the home game want to buy this because I need someone to sell this to. Right. So that's usually when people get left holding the bag. And so when you get these large momentum trades and you probably experienced it a few times in cryptocurrencies, right? Um, because in cryptocurrencies, you don't even have sort of some of the stabilizing forces like market makers and stuff that can sometimes take the edge off of those. Um, you will see that um, when that starts to happen, um, you have a rush to the door, right? right? No one wants to be the last person out of a position like that, especially if they got in late. And so once it sort of turns that curve down and most of these sort of hedge funds are now out and are handing off all of their shares to these folks that thought that this is going to be the greatest investment ever, um, well, that's when the whole floor kind of comes out from it and it just begins to collapse. And then, then that new purchaser, often, uh, which can often be retail clients, um, then they get scared because they're losing money and it's showing up red when they come home from work and they just suddenly also get out and then you just create this momentum downshift, right? Um, in the chart. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, as hedge funds, we also know the levels it'll probably retest for support. And so we're just ready and ready to go when it comes back down to buy it again. Um, and so that's essentially, you know, what we would do most of the time, right? And it all really depends. And this kind of goes a little bit in line with what you folks are doing with risk tolerance. It, um, it also very much depended on the style of trading we were doing, right? So we would have the ability to trade in different ways. And so, but generally most folks focused on sort of this more short-term, quick, high-frequency trading. Um, and then there were some others that focused on more longer term, longer holds, like three months, six months, things like that. Now, if you're doing that, you, you have an entirely different evaluation of how you're going to be trading, right? You're probably not going to be trying to get involved in a lot of momentum trades, right? Because it's far too risky given your holding period. I have a question here. Mm -hmm. How much of this trading of whatever stock dependent depended on or was directly correlated to the value of the stock itself or the value of the company that was representing the stock? Um, well, I mean, and that's, that's where you kind of know when things are going a bit parabolic, right? When that gets out of whack, right? When you suddenly see like a PE ratio that doesn't make any sense anymore for this particular company and has never, and has never been historically PE being uh, price to earnings ratio. So that's the price of the stock to the earnings that the stock makes. I'm right? going to get you to expand like all the acronyms. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. So when you're, when you're thinking of that, that's, that's kind of, in some ways, a lot of people use that PE ratio, that price to earnings ratio as sort of what the value of that stock is as sort of a valuation, right? And so and in different sectors, you'll have different standards of price to earnings that make sense, right? So like right now, for instance, in sort of the fossil fuel sector, because it's a little unloved and most people think it doesn't have a great future, even though we see oil spiking right now due to supply chain breakdowns, um, you're probably likely to see lower price to earnings ratios, right? Maybe more around the area of like 10 um, but when you have a, like I say, a, a great tech stock, right. That everyone thinks is going to be growing super fast and that industry is going to be growing super fast. I mean, you can see valuations. Like I can actually pull up like Tesla right now for you and probably pull up a valuation that is like, yes, 350 versus say what you would have 10 for an oil. Right. Can you put those in perspective and like, what is, uh, what is a, 
an appealing P&E ratio? Well, it depends, right? So this is where you have these analysts who specialize in this. So a company like Tesla, where everyone thinks that this is a company that is just going to keep growing exponentially, you might be willing to take a, to, to be fine with buying it at a 350 price to earnings ratio. Right, right. So the higher the ratio, sort of the more risk, depending on how you feel about that, that company. It's more, the, it's more, I mean, the risk is that's what you're there to, to try to figure out as an analyst. But what you're saying, what you're saying with a higher ratio is that this thing is trading at a very high multiple versus its earnings, right. which means that people believe that this is going to be a high growth and those earnings are going to keep growing and that that ratio will start to collapse. Well, it's almost that they think like that's a representation of what they think the stock will be worth in the future rather than what the stock is worth now. Exactly. So, Interesting. When, you, so when you see that high growth sector and you see that high multiple, um, you're imagining in 10 years from now that that's going to begin to collapse, but not because um, the earnings are going to drop and then the price is going to drop, hopefully, but because the earnings are going to rise and they're going to begin to move closer to- And meet. Yeah, and meet a little right. bit. Yeah. Or make it something a little bit more realistic. Because if you were to take like another, say, um, you know, very big tech stock that used to trade at slightly higher multiples, you can look at Apple, which is trading at about 30, right? But still about three times what you'd see in an oil company. Okay. Because, so like the, the standard way to measure a company is like generally 10 though, like whatever the earnings are, multiply that by 10. And that's like a rough valuation. You're shaking your head. So. No, no. It depends on the industry, okay. right? That's why. Cause I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll have different acceptable PE ratios depending on the industry that you're in. Like if you're like, you know, looking at craft foods or like a very stable kind of boring, you know, staples industry, you're going to have lower PE ratios because they're not going to grow, you know, 80% year over year, right? They're going to grow maybe five, 10%. So therefore, why would you have this massive forward multiple? You right. know, you're, you're giving the forward multiple based on how, how much you think this company is going to grow over the next year. Cool. So with, so with Tesla, this is why a lot of people like are on both sides arguing regarding the stock, right? Cause some people are like, there's no fucking way this thing deserves to have a 350 PE ratio. And there's other people that are like, no, 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 this thing is going to be worth 10,000. You know, right now it's trading at a thousand. This thing could be worth 10,000 in three or four years. So forget the earnings ratio, go with the growth. Right. And so that's where. Um, that's why like, you know, more unloved sectors will tend to have lower PE ratios where you'll, you'll you're going to pay at a dis basically they're discounted. So let's bring this back to crypto and how does the PE ratio come into or apply or some analog of it apply to cryptocurrencies? Like how would you measure, what would be the analog for Bitcoin, for example, if you were to try to measure it in a similar way and well, you've got another. Yeah. Cause well, price to earnings ratio, what, what would the earnings be on a cryptocurrency? Right. It has no earnings essentially. Yeah. Or well, I guess, yeah. How would you measure that? Is, is PE ratios even a thing in crypto? I think no. it would be for like some kind of cryptocurrencies, like maybe the ones that represent uh, like exchange tokens, for example, or like utility tokens, governance tokens, one that actually gives you a share of the value transacted on the network. Um, but like for something like Bitcoin, that one, I'm just kind of like scratching my head. How exactly do you do you measure that in a similar way? Honestly, you wouldn't. Okay. Um, not for Bitcoin. Bitcoin would be much more comparable to oil or gold where you don't use PE ratios, right? right? Where now you're beginning to use scarcity, supply and demand. Um, it's almost more of like a pure economic, like like old school, like sort of macro microeconomics when you're looking at these types of commodities or like what's the supply, what's the demand and what's the level of speculation? But at the same time, you can still kind of like think of Bitcoin, the whole the whole damn thing as a business. Like you've got actors that run the business and they're everywhere and they take an income based on chance, whether or not they've successfully mined a block and they gather fees. And so they're earning and like the whole Bitcoin machine is spitting out income in a sense, denominated in BTC, like the, the asset that it, it drives and runs. So like it. We had this conversation the other night where it like half looks like a business. Well, not half, like third looks like a business, third looks like a commodity and third looks like a, a currency. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just in this quasi area in between there. Do you, have, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think, though, it would still be you still really wouldn't probably apply those peripheral things as a price earnings ratio to anything like Bitcoin, but you would apply it to the companies that do it. So if you have a company like right. Coinbase, right, that's making lots of money off of creating a market for Bitcoin um, and giving access to Bitcoin, they have actual earnings. And or they the mining have, company. Or, the, or a mining company that right. is actually making earnings based on mining Bitcoin. It would almost be like a regular mining company if you're mining gold. Right. And so there you would actually have it. So if you look at a company like Coinbase, Coinbase right now, it has a PE ratio of about 23. And, would you, and Coin, yeah, the Coinbase stock is also listed on the stock exchange. It's uh, it's not a cryptocurrency. Right. It just is a derivative of that larger crypto market, right? Because their business is basically based around that. But they could branch out at any point 
and start doing other types of financial assets if they wanted to. And would you use the performance of those stocks that trade Bitcoin or mine Bitcoin um, or provide a Bitcoin exchange as a as a proxy to like make a judgment call on whether or not to buy the underlying asset? Like, so the similar question would be like, okay, oil companies are doing well. Do I buy oil? Um, okay, that's a good question. Uh, and that can very much depend on a lot of different moving parts. I think that um, you could say that if we begin to see more and more and more buy-in into cryptocurrencies, that these companies that make money off of you know helping trade them and, not, and giving access to them um, should increase their profitability because they're going to have a larger client base. And therefore, I would maybe... and. As someone that thinks that I think that cryptocurrencies are, are not going anywhere and they're actually going to only expand in the sense of the amount of people investing and using them um, and the types of players that are using them, then you could speculate, well, yeah, I would maybe give Coinbase a higher PE ratio than, say, an oil company, because I think there's a lot more future in this industry than there is in that industry, right, especially given things like climate change. And so in that sort of sense, yes, you could... Um, uh, you could very much uh, base that based on how those markets are going. Now, if those markets start to dry up and there is like less interest in them, um, then you might take a company like Coinbase and, and short it because you think maybe it's overvalued, right? right. Um, now, on the flip side of that, though, uh, Coinbase is dealing with a whole bunch of different variables that Bitcoin isn't, right? <laughs> right? Like potential competition coming in. Like, so what happens to Coinbase if suddenly all of like sort of the old school banks start having no problems and taking larger and larger positions and offering more and more platforms to their clients to trade these currencies, which is the direction that these banks are going to probably go in. Right. And so even though you have Jamie Dimon saying that, you know, there's nothing to Bitcoin and it's basically a hollow thing. He's also on the same breath, if I recall, with the article I read a couple of weeks ago, saying that we're also happy to offer it to our clients because right. our clients yeah. want it, right? Yeah. And so I'm not going to tell a client what, you know, what they should and shouldn't buy. You know what I mean? We'll give them advice, but that's that. And we'll also begin to probably create analysts and experts in this, which they already have, honestly, um, quite a few. Um, and so they're already beginning to build these networks out. And so that could be a little dangerous for a company like Coinbase, right? But when I look at a company like Coinbase, though, I also kind of see it as a company that is more plugged into like the true believers, shall we say, when it comes to the cryptocurrencies, like folks that were like early adopters um, who don't want to work through the, uh, the normal banking system, who like this idea of decentralization. And that's one of their main attractions to these cryptocurrencies, um, rather than, say, the example of like the doctor I gave earlier who just wants to get in on a Momo trade on Dogecoin. Right. So there's a that person probably doesn't care what they're buying it through. They're happy to do it through their broker, at, you know, Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or what have you. Um, whereas I think that a lot of those folks that are looking at this as really an alternate form of finance, I find that they also tend to have they also tend to be a little allergic to the traditional financial system. So going through a bank, I'm not sure it would be as attractive to them. So I, I think that there's so many different things you have to bring in when you're analyzing something like totally. this. And then um, you're not even covering like the total breadth and scope of, of what can be analyzed. You're just picking and choosing the variables that feel right to you. Yeah, exactly. And I'm right now I'm being totally subjective in that because I'm not an analyst of Bitcoin. I mean, sorry, I have Coinbase and then they have analysts that have probably pieced together so many more variables right. about where they think this company is going and how these things kind of shape out. And sort of to the you know conversation we were having just before the podcast started, some of those variables are qualitative and some of those variables are quantitative. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. That was a fantastic tangent on exploring <laughs> P&E ratios. Let's get back to when you were at the hedge fund company. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, so that sort of played out. And um, I think over the course of that job, I think I learned a lot. And um, for me, I think that uh, one of the most important things that isn't taught to people is, um, is, is finance. And I think it's something that should be taught in high school. Um, because by the time you get to university, they're already handing you out a credit card, handing you out student loans. Um, you've already, you're basically, it's a trap, right? And so in a lot of ways, I feel like the financial industry itself is perfectly happy with not having this taught too much because it leaves the power mostly in their hands and it kind of, you know, solidifies that power in their vernacular and stuff like that. It's kind of similar to lawyers in some ways. When did, um, when did you think that this was a trap or when did you realize or maybe speculate that, hey, this seems like a trap because not maybe you, but a lot of individuals that have just turned 18 or just turned 19 have never handled credit before, even like even leaving aside money or they've never handled money before set aside even handling credit. So when did you realize 
that the tables were sort of, um, or not the tables, the but like the stacked. cards, the cards were stacked in the favor of people handing over the credit instead of making it look like they're providing value to all of these young, new credit takers. Honestly, not until more recently, I haven't really thought that through. And I'll be honest as to why. And sort of you kind of, at least for me, I kind of like blithely went through my 20s taking for granted that this was just something that people basically had basic understandings of. First, there was sort of a geographical bias in that and that I was in New York City where a lot of people do are more aware of this industry um, because it's sort of the financial capital of, you know, the United States. But you could even make an argument of like global financial capital um, of the world when it comes to finance. And then another thing is that because I took my Series 7 at like 19, like I just kind of like thought that this was just something that you could easily pick up and know, right? And so I just sort of like thought, oh, okay, well, like you should just understand, you know, just, you know, go look it up, read a book, you know, you're all set. It's really super easy. And um, I think that once I actually started teaching in the last, I've been now teaching as a professor for about seven years. Um, once I started teaching and teaching especially uh, courses that brushed up along political economy, but also talked about financial markets, and I just watched students recoil from that, right? In that, you know, um, there tends to be a bit of like, well, one, there's sort of this like, you know, among undergraduates in their first and second year, capitalism isn't super popular, right, as a concept, <laughs> shall we say. So there's sort of like that allergy right away against sort of capitalism itself. But there also tends to be, and I, and I teach in a multidisciplinary program where there's a lot of people have more qualitative backgrounds, so there tend to be a little fear of numbers. There tends to be this assumption that you have to understand lots of math. Um, there also tends to be this assumption that it's super complicated and that they'll never understand it. Um, and so it kind of creates this barrier. And I think that it's hard to break down that barrier the longer it's there. And so I think that, you know, when you introduce something when people are younger, kind of going back to the beginning of this, like with the Series 7, I didn't realize it was supposed to be so hard. Um, then the, you sort of like don't create that barrier in the first place where they sort of feel like this is something that is just outside of their comfort zone. And so when I started to put, you know, thinking about this as a trap, as I'm looking at these very same students who are like, do not feel comfortable talking about um, math and finance and all that kind of stuff. Also, you know, using credit cards, picking up student debt and being very involved in the financial system, whether they like it or not, whether they actually realize it, right? Because all that student debt, it, debt in any form can always be repackaged and sold on all these markets. And I don't think they fully understand that. No, whether you whether you hate capitalism or love capitalism or whether you hate numbers or not or, love, or don't love numbers, uh, you're in this. You're in this, you know, whether you like it or not. And I think that that tends to happen, you know, the moment that you for the typical, you know, sort of middle class, upper middle class kid when they get to university, right? Because at home, you know, they're sort of dealing with their parents' finances, right? But this is the first time that they're going to actually have to sort out entirely by themselves. Um, you know what I mean? And not just be like, well, I got a summer job, but I you know, don't pay rent, you know, and stuff like that. And so that's where I feel like the trap comes. And it's often where I see people begin to build out a lot of debt initially, particularly, I think, in the United States, where university is so prohibitively expensive that it's almost a bit of a process of creating indentured servants that are coming out of university that have to basically work in industries as hard as they possibly can to pay off that debt. And kind of like a treadmill that you you can't actually ever get off really uh like the, the amounts of debt that yeah united states people um people from the united states graduate with is the most in the world is, is it not like no other country charges near as much as the united states not that i'm aware of i mean if so it's probably a very small like you know tiny example of someone charges more than that but no the u.s by far because it's basically mostly a private university system you can go to cheaper universities if you go to your state schools but um, those can often be uh, highly competitive to get into, but even that is pretty cost prohibitive, right? And, and then the your federal schools. student loans are, are the kind of debt that you can't get rid of through claiming bankruptcy. So you, that debt tags on no matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're always going to be paying that down. Yeah, which is kind of fucking ridiculous that like that you can't get out. You can get out of everything else in bankruptcy. Like I can I can make can make a company. I can blow it up. I can take up personal debt for that. I can blow the whole company up. I can have people get fired and all that kind of stuff. But I still and I can wash that out of my life with bankruptcy, but I can't wash out my student debt. It doesn't make, you know what I mean? Right. And I think that the irony of that also for me is that um, the people that probably need to know the most about finance are the people that usually know the least in the sense of graduating with a ton of debt as a history major is often <laughs> a lot more difficult to get rid of that debt, shall we say, not, not I love history, um, than say if you graduate with like, you know, an engineering degree. Exactly. And you're yeah. going to get a job like that. And so, um, and so that's one of or those things. 
or, or a trade. Yeah. Or you may not even pick up much debt, right? Because maybe you're doing it at a community college, which is much more affordable, right? right? You, don't, you don't have plumbers graduating with the same kind of debt as philosophy majors. You know what I mean? Um, and so, but the philosophy major is the one that probably is in my class, like shifting in their seat the moment we're talking about international finance. Well, that's so asymmetric. Yeah. That the situation is is the reverse of what it really like in, in your brain should be like your plumber is going to make a lot of money your electrician is going to make a lot of money and there's very little jobs for the philosophy students but they're graduating with the most debt cool just wanted to lay that out yeah and i mean i'm not trying to pick on philosophy it could be it could i be, love philosophy yeah me too it could be english i love history it could be history it could be any of those but the humanities in general and i think we're also beginning to see um, and I don't know because I'm not in people's heads or know their know their family life, but I am. We have seen def, uh, definitely at universities a move more towards STEM um, among students. I think who are uh, whether it's because their family's pushing them to not be an English major because they they don't want them to pick up debt and then not have a job, or whether they personally have made that assessment. We are starting to see the, the a bit of a collapse in the enrollment in humanities, and I think it is because of this idea of this is something that is very expensive to get as a degree, but there is not a, a high-end job guarantee at the end of that road, right? And so um, that's and that's kind of sad to me, right? If we start to develop a society that's like losing uh, philosophers. And I think, you know, when you look at, um, I think they did a study um, that philosophy is actually one of the most common degrees among CEOs in Silicon Valley, just because of the way that it makes you think outside the box. Right. And I think it was my own humanities degree in history that really sat with me through being a trader and that the part that I found the most fun was not the one where I was sitting there looking at my positions going against me and I'm freaking out and wondering how I'm going to pay my mortgage um, or if I'm going to get fired. It was the moments when you would actually have sort of these larger political news or, or history making moments and how the markets would interpret and uh, those events. So that interaction between politics and economics um, and, and much of politics, you know, has a lot of overlapping with history, especially when you study political science, it's like all about sort of historical moments. Um, and so, yeah, so like that interaction for me, that was what was so interesting. And that was the part I loved. And that was the part I would always talk about when I was sitting on the desk and I'd be like, oh, you know, this is happening. This is gonna be really cool. It's gonna do, you know, all that kind of stuff where I think the market's gonna interpret this way. And that was the part I really enjoyed. And so I, after kind of exhausting myself in that job and, um, not wanting to do it anymore. Uh, and also I'll just be honest, it's an incredibly anxiety ridden job, right? Um, and stress too, I'm assuming. Yes. High stress. I think when I was doing it, they said that, uh, they usually do like measures of, um, careers, uh, versus anxiety, uh, or, or levels of anxiety in, in the U S and they found that, um, long, short proprietary traders <laughs> were number two after military personnel in an active war zone. Huh. That's about the only thing I think. And this was like, I think this came out like in 2008 and I'll have to look it up for you guys and send it to you. Um, but yeah, so like that was one of these things. And like, so even like, you know, so you had to be getting shot at in Afghanistan to have more anxiety than these traders. And it was not odd to have, you know, people get pulled off the desk and have to go to the hospital and just to be calmed down and given like sedatives, right? Especially when things got incredibly volatile. It happened to me actually. Um, and and, and a few, more than a few friends. And so I think that in that sense, the job itself was also not sustainable, right? And I would look at the older dudes that were doing this, you know what I mean? And watching them like clutch a bottle of like, you know, uh, volume basically, or like Ativan or something just to get through the day. And I'm like, I don't want to take Xanax. Uh, as a reg on the regular to get through my day when I'm 45 and like, you know, and also it's not a job where you get a lot of exercise either. So like, you're kind of like unfit, overstressed, <laughs> highly anxious. And, uh, and then you go through massive highs and lows, right? Because you have a great day, you have a bad day, right? And then often you end up, you know, kind of self-medicating, you drink, um, you smoke weed, you do whatever it takes to kind of fall asleep sometimes, right? Cause you're still replaying the day in your head constantly and the mistakes you made and how to not do them. Because each mistake costs you something. It's not, it's not, it's not like, yeah, it's not theoretical mistakes, right? It's like, oh shit, I lost $25,000 on that. I need to be much smarter. And the thing is, is that when you dug yourself in a hole at this, at the structure of this particular hedge fund, you had to dig yourself out before you started making money, right? So you would make about half of your profits. But if you were in negative, you had to get back positive before you would even start making money. So yeah, it's, it was pretty nasty. And so I think for me, um, that was, that for me was not something I wanted to do. So I was happy. It was cool. You know, it, it did what it did for me and it taught me a lot. And then I left. 
What, was there a turning point for you for you to decide that, okay, this is, you know, this is the end of this phase of my career? I think ending up in the hospital overnight where they couldn't get my heart rate down was like probably <gasps> for me the point where I was like, this is stupid. And, and like knowing dudes that had undergone that process yeah. and, and watching them go back. It was funny too, because when they checked me in, I remember it was like, uh, I think it was like January. Yeah, it was like January. Um, it was cold out and, uh, I was going out for drinks and my friend was like, uh, let's do this. Let's go get drunk and stuff like that. Cause it was a hard day at work. And I was like, actually, I think I need to go to the hospital. Cause I was at that <laughs> point, like kind of going through two or three anxiety attacks a day. Right. But this one didn't seem to go away. So we went to the hospital, I sat in the emergency room. They checked me in pretty quickly. And this intern comes over to me and she asks me, you know, background information. And she asked me what I do. And when I told her what I did, she's like, Oh, another one of you guys, because you guys are all the time. And it was kind of like, Oh, this is fucking cool. Like, it's a great <laughs> fucking job, right? Where, like, you know, they you basically have your own seat at the hospital, right? You know what I mean? And they can your just pump your, yeah, your own ward. They just pump you full of Ativan and send you back out there, right? And so in some weird ways, I would say that that type of trading is probably not for humans. It is probably better for black boxes, that very right. quick high-frequency trading. We spend a lot of time actually convincing some of our clients or some people that reach out to us not to be traders. Mm -hmm. uh, like, it's... Uh, What's the book that we read, Maria, where you have the to The Psychology know, of Money. Yeah, and you got to know the game that you're playing. Yeah. And it's like, are you a trader? Are you playing the trading game? Well, like, go out and do the trading game then if you're going to take it seriously. Or if you're going to do it, you should take it seriously. But, like, yeah. don't be an engineer from 9 to 5 and then come home and convince yourself you're going to trade the markets from five until 10. Not actively trading, right? right? I mean, like if you, I mean, you can become, there's so many different types of trading styles, right? And I feel like for folks that do want to do their own trading and do have like, let's say an intensive career, you have to be trading on a much longer time horizon, right? You're trading over the court, you're trading on positions that you're hoping to capitalize in six months or a year, not positions that you need to get out of like, you know, at a particular level tomorrow or else the whole thing, fall, the whole trade falls apart. You're never going to be able to keep up with the pros and you don't at home, when you play the home game, you don't have nearly the information either, right? The amount of information that I would have on my six screens as I was sitting there <laughs> was way more than I would than I have when I open up my little TD, you know, um, you know, trading account, account, yeah, brokerage <laughs> account here, which has some cool, nifty little things to it. But like, no, there's no comparison, right? Those trading platforms aren't the same, and. Um, and just the information you could see, you could see like order flows and all this kind of stuff, and so it just gave a lot of different advantages. Um, but yeah, so I think after that, uh, I left and I kind of really wanted to explore the thing that I did like about my job, which was that interaction. And that's when I went back and got a master's degree um, in political economy and international relations and stuff like that, and looking at some of these international markets. And um, but by the time I was done with that, I really didn't have much of a desire to go back, but also there weren't really any jobs. Right. So that was after the crash. Um, now you would sort of, you know, some of these funds made a lot of money. You know, we made a lot of money during the crash, like most folks did who got on that short side. But I think that afterwards there was this sort of... The 2008 crash, just... For, yeah. Yeah, so everyone knows. Did, did, you, did you predict it or did you have information available to know it was going to happen? I mean, I think we all knew it was coming. I mean, anyone that was really... I feel like anyone that was really... And this is just my disclaimer. I'm not trying to accuse anybody. But right. like, yeah, like we saw this coming. Like, I mean, you... How far in advance? Um, I would say that a lot of the folks that I knew at that fund were already beginning to reposition themselves by um, like October, November 20, uh, 2007. Okay. So you're talking about a year before Lehman, right? We started, we started to figure out getting on the right side of that trade. One of the things I find fascinating is that like that kind of a bubble, the housing bubble, just like it took place on such a massive scale, but you see those types, there's exactly the same types of setups happen all the time in cryptocurrencies, like play out on like the span of months or weeks. Mm -hmm. And like, what, what would you say to people who are participating in these momentum trades? Cause like that, the, the housing bubble, that was essentially a momentum trade, but mm -hmm. on a massive scale that plays out on, on the magnet or on the scale of like years instead of months or, or weeks. Yeah. And I think that the momentum trade in real estate in the United States was facilitated by the banks repackaging all of these mortgages right. in ways that they could allow people to enter that momentum trade, again, hand the bag off to the newest person in the room that really probably shouldn't have been taking on mortgages like that, right? All the subprime, right? And so that you want to keep a momentum trade going, then the last amount of people, you, then the last people you get into that trade are people that shouldn't be in it, right? That are using their last penny or are leveraging themselves to get into this momentum trade. And, you know, because those are the, or those are the last group that hasn't gotten in, right? And, and the thing is, is that once everyone's on one side of the trade, you have to get to the other side because there's no one left to buy, right? And so that's another thing is that, you know, we were just, I mean, 
I'm not going to say we, I'm going to say I was looking at this in, in October, November of 2007, and it just looked untenable. And it was all about, okay, we need, and you already began to see cracks in the summer of 2007. Um, there were issues there and um, that sort of had caused some instabilities in the markets. But then there was this weird sort of last moment of high, like a market sort of highs in, in October, November of 2007. But it was happening with less and less um, conviction, right? So another thing that you always look at when you're trading is what's the volume behind this trade, right? Is this a real move or is this just kind of like a weird sort of technical move or is this just a day where no one's actually participating? You know what I mean? Like who's actually involved in this? And once you see high volume behind a move, that means that that move has more conviction, right? And so when the market was you know, making sort of its last attempt at highs in, in sort of the fall of 2007, it was doing so on not on great volume and not good breath. And what I mean by breath is that is the ratio of winners to losers on a given day, stocks that have gone down versus stocks that have gone up. And so it was on negative breath in a lot of cases where you actually had more stocks going down, but you just had a, a few stocks that were still super strong and leading the way up, stocks like Apple at the time, right? Stocks like I think even Amazon at the time. So you had these tech stocks that were like pushing it higher and higher um, because of their market capitalization and their role in these indexes. But when you actually looked at the market, it looked very sick. And um, that combined with what we already knew with the housing prices and the interest rates going up a little bit at that time because we had a commodities bubble. And so commodities bubbles, you know, tend to have very negative effects on housing markets. So that should be kind of interesting to see where we go in the next year, because often commodity bubbles will lead to higher interest rates to stave off inflation. And once that happens, that can, you know, freeze up a housing market because now mortgages are more expensive. The weird thing we have going on right now, and I think which is also helping to fuel some of the cryptocurrency, is that... We're in this odd place after this pandemic where we have very relatively high inflation, like higher inflation than we've seen in about 30 years, but basically rates still sitting at zero and we're not fighting that inflation, right? And if you want, and that means that that inflation could be allowed to run rampant for a little longer. And I think that you have a lot of central banks right now that are weighing a lot of the issues of raising rates, right? They know that they kind of need to soon because or else this inflation could become very dangerous, but they have some issues there. One is that could very much damage their housing market. A lot of people have just gotten into the housing market. Yeah. Um, so they'll feel a negative value for their house if the market drops off. Canada particularly, right, is a dangerous housing market, you know, given how much of a bubble it's in. Well, I wouldn't say call it a bubble yet, but if we get to like interest rates of five or 6%, oh yeah, it's going to be a bubble, right? And so that combined also with them weighing it against their debt service, right? Because so many countries have taken out so much sovereign debt to pay, to basically buffer their population against the pandemic that now their debt service cost has gone up. And where the amount of debt they have is, has gone up. But if you raise the interest rates and now, you know, people are expecting better and better rates for the debt that you're giving out because of inflation, well, that means your debt service is going to go up and that's going to hit their domestic budget. So everyone's trying to weigh this out right now. And I think the real hope is that we end up with this sort of Goldilocks scenario, which is sort of a, um, I don't know if it's like Wall Street gibberish, basically, for walking that middle line, right? For like not getting too hot and not getting too cold, right? So they always talk about sort of central banks trying to find the Goldilocks, right, scenario of like, there's just the right temperature of sort of monetary policy that doesn't freeze up the market, right, but also doesn't overheat the market. But isn't, well, at this point of time, uh, or, or at this point in time, isn't anticipating or trying to reach a Goldilocks scenario, kind of like treading on thin ice, hoping that it doesn't crack and hoping to get across a really large portion of water, which is essentially built up on thin ice? Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's, I think that central banks are, have been pretty good at mapping this out in the past, but the pandemic is something new that we haven't dealt with since, you know, in about a hundred years, right, on this level. And so I think that everyone's trying to base a lot of what they're doing now on prior ways of dealing with this, right? But the complete breakdown of a lot of the supply chains, I think, and the length of that breakdown and the depth of that breakdown, I think has taken some of these central banks by surprise. I think they thought that this would get flushed out of the system faster. And... Um, some of that is just through exhaustion. Some of that is through people not going back to work, not wanting to work in some of these industries that are fundamental for supply chains. And other parts of it is, you know, this sort of intermittent up and down pandemic, which at times strikes and then disappears and then strikes again, especially in the last year or so. Right. Um, and so I think that 
they're trying to figure this out as they go. And they've been hoping that the Goldilocks scenario is let the economy run hot right now, let inflation run a little hot because it's not real inflation, right? It's sort of, um, it's inflation that is really built around like a singular situation that should eventually go away. It's not structural inflation, shall I say. Um, What's the difference? Well, I mean, you can have you can have inflation happen because of an event or you can have inflation start to become structural. Right. So the fear that folks have had um, with this newest bout of inflation um, is that this could turn into this 1970s style stagflation, right, where you have low growth rates, but high inflation that eat away at those growth rates. And therefore, you don't actually you're not actually growing once you account for inflation. And that's, I mean, that's a danger, right? But that means it has to kind of become structural. It means that these commodity prices suddenly need to stay high because we just have this constant low supply, right? And that it might also mean that, you know, these supply chains may feel a little broken. So therefore, you know, we have to now spend so much time sort of recalibrating and creating more resilient economies, which takes time to be able to, you know, create supply chains that are more resilient. That could also continue to keep this inflation up. Um, and this is what they're, this is what people far smarter than me sitting in the central banks are trying to figure out. Like the true, you know, all the PhD, you know, economists are, are sorting through this right now. And I wish them luck. <laughs> you know, it's really hard. It's really hard to sort through this. But I think cryptocurrency kind of comes into a situation like this as a very interesting asset class. Because um, I think that in some ways it is easier um, and uh, more accessible, I almost feel like, than trading gold in some ways, which is because you're always trading abstractions of gold of some kind. You're not really, you're not, you're not really owning the physical thing very unless you're going and buying coins. I mean, God bless you, cool, that's cool. But you're not actually, you're always, you're always on some kind of a derivative of it. Right. Um, and so I think that uh, if you're trying to find an inflation uh, hedge, something like Bitcoin, which has a, a limited amount, therefore built-in scarcity is a way to try and do that. Now, that being said, Bitcoin's had a great run and I'm not telling people to go buy it right now, particularly where it's <laughs> kind of is, you know, just technically in the chart. I think that, um, you know, you, you, you might want to wait or just see how this plays out right now. We were talking a little earlier about it's kind of in a little bit of an inflection point, you know, on this day right now of October 28th. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say yeah, this is October that. 28th. Because yeah. <laughs> by the time this comes out, it could have like burst out on one side or the other. But yeah, you sort of have this sort of pattern where it's sort of topping out at its previous high, which could create a double top, which is bad, which means it'll probably come back down and naturally retrace. But that's healthy, I find. Yeah. Like, because then you're not in this parabolic move. Um, that then comes down parabolically. So like, I feel like it's sort of healthy to have that sort of retesting, making sure that there is support at those levels down, maybe at like 43,000 or 32,000, depending on the level of the retracement. Um, and that buyers come back in that actually is very heartening for something like Bitcoin, which can be very volatile. But on the flip side, you know, if we still, we keep getting some of these numbers coming in and inflation keeps running hot, I could see also the opposite happening in Bitcoin breaking out into new highs. Um, and that in some ways is, uh, is, is an entirely different trading style dealing with it breaking out versus dealing with it coming in. I know that we have to um, stop this recording in a couple of minutes and we're going to have to. <laughs> You're going to have to come back because will. Will come back. so much to so learn from more you. Questions that, so many more questions. Too. Yeah. So uh, before we, you know, mark an end to this particular episode, um, let's bring your story to um like what happens next and stop right there so we can pick that up in the next episode. Sure. So I, you know, I went, I left um, that job and then I enrolled in a master's program at NYU and I completed that, I think, um, early 2011. Um, and uh, from that, I didn't really know what to do with myself. So maybe that's probably the best place to leave it. <laughs> I was kind of lost because I, I, I had been working in this weird industry that I didn't really like for about a decade. And then suddenly, and I didn't want to go back to, and also I didn't think there was a job for me anymore because I'd probably even be replaced by a computer um, who doesn't need to go to the hospital and take uh, out of it <laughs> to go back home, which is fair. Um, and that's what happened to a lot of those trading desks. They, they, they definitely got a lot smaller. And I think that, you know, um, humans don't do a lot of high frequency trading, at least in my opinion, anymore compared to what they used to trying to do that sort of scalping technique. They, they, they more or less are, are more fundamental traders and trading on more longer term holds now just because computers do it better. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I had to figure out what to do with my life next. And that's essentially <laughs> where we, yeah, if you want to, that's probably a good inflection point. <laughs> this, this was, this was uh, your master's in international economics, correct? Yes, I was doing political economy and interna international relations. Okay. But with like a lot of environmental themes too. I, 
in full disclosure, like the, the area that I specialized or they felt most comfortable operating in was the oil and natural gas sector when I was a trader. I just some, I just had a bit of a, be- I, I just had a grasp on like how it worked, right? I just right. Like understood how oil worked. I understood how that kind of worked with oil companies and the, the, the disjunctions there and, you know, how like, you know, refiners work and the crack spread and all this kind of stuff. And so I just kind of got that down. But it's a terrifying industry, and I'm very terrified about climate change. So the interesting thing about trading on that side was that you also learned a lot about the alternatives because they were competitors, right? And there were right. other things that you could invest in alongside of it. And they also tend to go up together, um, which people don't really realize, right? Is that the higher the oil price, the more affordable um, renewables are, and they tend to also increase in value because people are buying more of them right. um, to offset the oil. Uh, they don't trade inversely. Like if you want to trade inversely with oil, then look at airlines, right? Who need to use oil as an input. Mm. Um, and then it's very expensive and they have this very, very, you know, low margin business where every seat needs to be filled and all that kind of stuff to make up for the cost of the fuel. But yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I was also working on sort of the environmental side and such and, uh, and yeah, and then I just was kind of totally lost. In 2011. In 2011. There we yep. have it. In the next episode, we're going to continue with what happens from 2011 to 2021. So the last decade. Right. So we did decade one and then we'll yeah. do decade two. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Everyone for tuning in. Oh my gosh. Wasn't that a blast? You're, you'll hear more about where you can find Andrew or read about it in the show description and stay tuned for the next episode because it's going to be fire just like this one. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. For sure.